the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 619 for Sunday, August 21st, 2016. Uh, greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We answer your questions and share your tips and all of that fun stuff with the goal of all of us learning at least four new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this week's episode include Otherworld Computing at MacSales.com and Barebones Software at Barebones.com. We'll talk more about them in a little bit. And here, for the moment, in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here, in Connecticut, John F. Braun. Good morning, John F. Braun. Yeah, that's what you think. It is a good morning. It's, um, you know, I got some travel coming up this Maybe week. Maybe for you. Yeah, it's been a little crazy getting everything straightened out. In fact, it's it's been a crazy week. So I'll talk about my travel just in case anybody in the Bay Area, I don't want you folks to feel like you missed out. I'm going to be in the Bay Area, and, and I have a couple of public uh, sightings uh, that should happen. So, uh, but, well, I'm heading, I'm heading out there. You know, I'm a drummer, too, and I'm heading out there to play a couple of gigs with uh, with Paul Kent who uh, you all may know as the guy who used to head up Macworld Expo. And so his band is playing a couple of gigs at the Good Guys West Coast National Car Show next weekend. And uh, so his drummer couldn't make it, so uh, there was enough money on the table to pay for flights. And I was like, all right, perfect. I'll come out wow. and I'll sub for you. Yeah. So I'm subbing for him. Uh, that's Saturday and Sunday at this uh, thing in uh, Pleasanton, California. And then Thursday night, I'm actually playing an acoustic gig where you might actually see me play guitar and sing a couple of songs. Um, we'll see how that goes uh, with Paul again at the Testarossa Wine Bar 107 in, uh, where is that? I think it's in uh, Los Gatos. Yeah. So uh, I'll, uh, there you go. So that's Thursday night, whatever this coming Thursday is. So um, let's call it the 20, the 20. <laughs> I think so. It's the 25th. That's what it's going to be. So, so there you go. That's that. This week's been busy, John. I, um, I have yeah. been in, in certificate. Um, the, the, the I've, I've been waiting and, and diving in and out of um, secure certificates all week because we migrated MacObserver.com over to HTTPS. And also while we were at it to HTTP2. So if you're using uh, Safari on your Mac or your iPhone and you visit MacObserver.com, it will be using the HTTP2 protocol o over TLS or in a secure way with a secure connection because that's basically how – I guess HTTP2 can work over an insecure connection, but no browser really supports it that way. So it's been fun. Um, Moving a website that has basically, you know, four iterations of itself and all of them have to now be, you know, HTTPS compliant is very interesting because when you visit a secure website um, and in order to get that that lock, you know, in the in the menu bar there or in the in the URL bar, not only does the connection to the website you chose to visit have to be secure, but the connections to every resource it loads, be it from its own web server or from a third party web server all have to be secure. So that, that was, that's where it really gets interesting is, um, is managing that. 
Plus, we um, you know we use we use Apache as our core web server, but Apache's not fast enough to handle the traffic that um, that Mac Observer gets. So we have an engine called Varnish that acts as a front end proxy. So uh, previously, you would actually request pages from Varnish. And then Varnish would, would go and, and get what it needed from Apache, but uh, Varnish could, you know, serve, get the page once and serve it to a bunch of people and uh, it makes it really efficient. But Varnish doesn't support HTTPS. So now we have a front end in front of Varnish acting as yet another proxy, an engine called Nginx, N-G-I-N-X, that does the HTTPS and HTTP2 um, requests and then passes those to Varnish, which acts as the cache, and then Apache is the core. So that was my week. Can you tell? Wow. I know. <laughs> well, updating our certs was kind of a warm up for that. Well, yeah, that. right. Yeah, that's right. We talked about that last week. Yeah, yeah. Updating our certificates was, yeah, getting certificates. So actually, th- this is an interesting thing and, and sort of important um, to, to folks who are podcasters, certainly, but also podcast listeners. There's an interesting thing afoot. Um, they, there are many certificate authorities. So when you want to go out and get a, a certificate for your website, um, you in the past and, and still you could go to places like GoDaddy or, you know, um, Komodo or, or start SSL and you buy a certificate and they authenticate you and, you know, you get whether you want the normal cert or the extended validation cert and you go through whatever process you need to go through and you pay them usually uh, you know, uh, somewhere on the order of, you know, a hundred or hundreds of dollars a year for the privilege of having this uh, certificate. And that's fine. And that works great. But Google started this push about two years ago that they want HTTPS everywhere, security everywhere. And that was part of our reason for, for doing this. I mean, we want it too. Uh, so, uh, but with certs being expensive, earlier this year, I guess maybe late last year, a company called Let's Encrypt at letsencrypt.org Uh, came into being and they will issue secure certificates for free to anyone. There's a little minor catch. Actually, there's two one one's uh, one's applicable to everyone though. And that is that they expire after only three months, but they have a little engine and there's other third-party engines that you can use too, that will automatically renew your cert every 60 days. So you never hit that three month limit. Um, and so Let's Encrypt is good. And we're actually using Let's Encrypt for some of our non, uh, some of our more internal things, I'll say. But we're not using it for MacObserver.com. And there's two reasons. Number one, we already had a cert because of the Mac Gab Premium stuff where we were taking your, and still are, taking your credit card. So we've had a cert for years. Um, but number two, iTunes. Not iTunes the app. iTunes the app is fine on your Mac or your phone. But iTunes the store you know, the one that you see either on the web or inside iTunes when you go to the store, will not pull secure podcast feeds if they are encrypted with a Let's Encrypt certificate. And it's not because they don't like Let's Encrypt. It's because, presumably, they're using Java 6 as the engine to do that. And Java 6 doesn't have the root certificate that Let's Encrypt is based upon. Yeah. Also, by the way, iTunes has told all of us podcasters that we need to be serving all of our media and feeds securely by January 1st. So go figure. You do the math. 
It's very interesting. It is not trivial to move your web server over to HTTPS. So if you are a podcaster, um, I'm happy to help you, you know, but it's, it's an interesting thing. It makes sense. I get why Apple's doing it, but they kind of need to get their house in order before they ask us to get our houses in order, I, th I think. And no, you don't need extended validation. It's just the root cert. I'm, I'm answering a question for will run for fun in our chat room at MacGeekGab.com slash stream. So no, Apple, Apple's fine with just a normal certificate but it needs to be based on the root um, certificates that are in Java six and let's encrypt does not have theirs in there, which is too bad. Right. Now you may ask yourself, <laughs> what's an EV cert extended <clears throat> validation. Yeah. Which is what we have at Mac observer, by the way, um, well, probably overkill, but, but that's what we have. Go ahead and add, now you want to answer the question, John. Let's see if you do. I'm trying to remember. I looked at this because it, you know, they they really didn't do a great job of this whole extended validation thing because most people have no idea what it means. What it okay? I'm looking now, I mean, visually, I, what you see, or at least though, if I go to Mac Observer, I see it come up in Safari in green with a green lock, and I yes. think that's only if something is EV. You, you'll see something a little different visually if it if it's just a regular secure connection instead of an extended validation well what'll happen so you're 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 sort of right it comes up in green but it also says the name of the company the mac observer inc right after the cert that only happens if it's extended validation otherwise you just get a lock and there's nothing wrong with the lock the security of the connection is the same either way or could be the same either way uh it it's um the extended validation is more about the fact that in our case, we got our cert from GoDaddy. And yes, some people have yelled at me about that, but so be it. Um, we got our cert from GoDaddy and, and it's, it's, it works great and it works with iTunes. So yell as much as you want, but it does what it needs to do. Um, they went through a verification process to make sure we are who we say we are that involved phone calls. And they needed to see, I think in the, in the beginning, they even needed to see like our, our corporate, um, you know, our articles of incorporation or a, a tax filing from the state or something. There was something they asked for that basically proved, yeah, we're, we're really this company and here we are. Um, so that that's, that's basically when you see an extended validation cert in place, it says not only is the connection secure, but in addition to that, we've gone out of our way to uh, prove that the entity you're visiting is the entity they say they are. I think that's probably the right way to say it. Yeah. And um, that can guard against, the, but, but it's still something I think your average person doesn't realize. I mean, yeah, it's green and it has the company name and it looks nice. But, um, right. <laughs> yeah. That's I why mean, I did it. It was only it like an extra 50 bucks or something. I, I mean, what it prevents, I mean, uh, so it'd be nice if they publicize it better. What it would prevent is somebody quickly acquiring a official looking domain and then getting a cert issued and then throwing up a phishing site because i could probably buy you know quickly like you know apple dash something something mm, right and maybe able to get it like behind somebody's back you know especially if it's if it's automated yep but like oh okay you want you want to buy this uh it's it's not taken here you go yeah. and then you get a cert issued and then you're like we because i've seen i've seen this you know on some phishing sites you know where, where the name looks kind of convincing like, does this really belong to this company? I'm not sure. This will help you with that. Yeah. Yeah. 
But yeah, the goal is to get the entire web to uh, be using HTTPS. And, and it's a good goal. So we're happy to be playing our role in that. Um, but it was a crazy you know, week sorting through all of that. It's, it's just lots of balls in the air all at once. But fun. You know, that's, that's, um, that's how yeah, it goes. What does get me is that um, Safari doesn't... Also, it doesn't do a good job of identifying what type of connection that you have. At least Firefox does that, or at least when I'm looking here. So if I run Firefox and I go to Mac Observer and then I click a few times, yep. at some point it'll say, oh, well, you have a TLS 1.2 connection, which I think is what you were talking about earlier. That's like a super secure... Um, it's like the, the latest thing, or that's well, what it says. No, in where do one you window? Where do you see that? If if you uh, go to Firefox, walk walk Firefox. us through that. Yep, Firefox, and then you click on the site, or you click on the little lock. Oh, okay. So you're talking about the say, certificate? Yeah. Okay. Then you click again, and then you click on more information. So it says, "Ah, Firefox," and then you click again, and then security on the bottom it tells you. Uh, the type of secure connection you have. You see that? Like mine says, it talks about the TLS, CHCCE, RSA with. Yeah. Okay. So that's, yeah, that's telling you about the encryption part of the connection. But what I've, what I've been having trouble finding in Firefox is telling me what protocol it's using. Um, If you go to Safari and you load Mac observer and you pull up the web inspector, which is um, you have to enable the develop menu to do that. I think, uh, but it's it's command option U is what will get you there. Um, and and then, or command option I will actually get you there, but command option U will get you there too. And then go to the resources tab. And once you've got the resources tab open, over on the right of the resources tab is a little details sidebar um, icon. And you can turn that on. Once you've got that open, reload the page. And you will see that the the status in the request and response section reads now HTTP 2.0, which is uh, which is different Neat. from just a secure connection. Well, HTTP 2 replaces HTTP 1.1, which is what we've been using basically forever, and it doesn't really change the mechanics of the request. But what it lets you do is a everything is now sent in binary um, and is compressed, which is good. And also multiple, um, multiple requests can happen over the same connection, which is super efficient. Uh, right now, you know, if you have a page with 10 images, you're actually loading 11 requests, right? At least 11. And if there's JavaScript or, or a, a style sheet or anything, well, now you're adding to those. And that can be very inefficient renegotiating things for, you know, for every connection, Whereas with HTTP two, you you open one basically one pipe, and and now multiple requests can go across it, and so that makes things really efficient. Where it really matters is mobile. When you know you're you're on a a weak connection anyway, you're not wasting all this time kind of renegotiating everything, which is good. It's how it it's how it should be. So that's how uh, that's how it works. Time to get to the show, John. Why not? Okay. <laughs> Uh, we have some tips for you today, and listener Mike is going to kick us off with those, I think. Uh, we talked in a pre- recently previous episode about phantom app storage, and uh, and Mike has a comment about that. He said uh, in 6.17, talking about phantom app storage on your iOS device, when you stream, 
movies and TV shows from the video app, it actually caches the data and does not release it properly. And we did. We talked about that. And uh, and actually, listener Jeff used that to to help us get um, to get things in the right place. But Mike takes us a step further. He says, I've spoken to Apple on this and they claim that this storage is smartly managed. Well, I will attest it is not managed smartly at all. I stream meaning click to play rather than download from iCloud many movies and TV shows that I have purchased from iTunes in the videos app. So I run into this issue often each time each item you play caches to the device, but does not show up as storage in the video app. In fact, it really messes up how all app data for the video app is displayed in the managed storage section. Often this results in the video app not showing in managed storage at all. Resolving this is quite simple, however. You simply sign out of iTunes and then sign back in. Magically, you will reclaim all that phantom storage that was used up. I often go to managed storage to see my newly freed up memory before signing back in because it makes me feel good. I do this every couple of weeks, freeing up 50 plus gigs from my iPad, given that I purchase and stream many movies from the video app before downloading them. So it's in settings, iTunes and app store, click on the ID and then sign out and then sign back in. It says, I know this works for all the video storage, given that I have to do it so frequently, but it may also work for that app. That's just taking up extra space. He says it's worth a shot. Thank you, Mike. Very good little tip. Very, very cool. I like it. It's good stuff. All right. Keeping moving, John. I hate when the tip is essentially turned off and on again, but yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, but, but that's just the key, right? Sometimes turning it off and on again does more than just turn it off and on. And in this case, that seems to be the case. So, all right. Uh, in the last episode, six, eight, six, 18, we were talking about migrating VHS tapes to your Mac and uh, listener Dave says, I have a follow-up comment. My setup is that I use an ITV 250. This contains an input for video from a component device, i.e. a VHS or anything else that has that output. Please bear in mind that the input from the VHS will be the resolution of that tape. I understand it to be 480i. I believe that's right. Uh, for most people, this will provide a way to archive these tapes and will be sufficient. There is a setting in ITV to send those files to iTunes and 720i, but I can't see the difference. Once in iTunes, right-clicking on these files and show in Finder, these movies can be written to DVDs via Toast or however else you want to do it. So the ITV 250 is the uh, is the device that uh, listener Dave is telling us about. I like this. This is good stuff. I, I kind of figured some of you might have better options, better solutions than uh, than we did. And I guess Elgato has the yeah, it's the 250 plus. I guess is what uh, what he's what he's talking about now. So yeah. And I'm not surprised that increasing the resolution doesn't do anything. <laughs> it's not like TV where they say enhance and like all of a sudden you find like more pixels. Right. You're, you're limited by what whatever the limitation of the source is, which in this case is 480. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think Betamax was, was more. Was it? Good old Betamax. Probably. <laughs> Probably. Um, all right. Uh, and then Allison from uh, podfeet.com from the Nozilla cast has a great follow up for our segment where we were talking about the client who uh, was afraid of migrating up past iOS 8 on her iPhone 6 Plus. And, uh, and Allison, it's brilliant. She says, if the consultant whose client has the corrupt phone with photos and voice memos had a spare iPhone, he or she could use it to simulate the nuke and pave of the client's phone. 
They could put all the data on the spare phone with the new OS and show the client that everything is there. That's a brilliant idea. It, it addresses the thing that needs to be addressed, i.e. the client's fears, while moving things down the path. I like it. It's good. That's really good. And, and it shows you, too. It'll, it's a good test to see. Is there some corruption? And if so, what does it affect? And you could kind of go back and forth with the two phones right there. I like it. Smart. Thank you, Allison. Brilliant. Lastly, last follow-up that we have from listener Bob with regards to the last episode uh, where I mentioned that I put some new RAM in and kernel task, uh, or and I noticed more RAM being used uh, out of the gate. And listener Bob says that kernel task will use more memory for page tables to manage the extra 16 gigs of RAM. I doubled from 16 to 32. He says this will most likely account for a couple hundred megabytes, maybe as much as 500, but not so much more. So, uh, so Great. I, I had no, it makes total, I hadn't thought about that, but it makes total sense that kernel task would, would need more to address more. Um, makes sense. Good stuff. Ready for a couple quick tips, John? Qu- quickly. Yes. Quickly. Okay. <laughs> uh, listener Josh writes in, I had no idea about this. He said, I discovered it on accident when in preview, if you press the uh, tilde key, or you don't even have to hold down shift. It can just be the, the key below the tilde. Uh, your mouse turns into a magnifying glass, showing you a larger version of what you're hovering over. But wait, there's more. If you have a trackpad, you can pinch to zoom further in or out. This came in handy as I was examining a blueprint. Uh, I had preview zoomed out so that I could see the entire site, but used magnification to see smaller details. It's so cool. <laughs> I, how did we not know about this? It's a great one. I like it. It's good stuff. Yeah, it's pretty Looking cool. In the menus here, tools I see hide magnifier. That's interesting. Oh yeah, yeah uh, buried in one of the menus. It's or just a happy accident. No, I think it's just happy accident. Yeah, it's true. It is in the tools menu, but um, oh yeah, and it is. It's the it's the little thing. So there it is. It's it's been there the whole time. There's a little, uh, and it's not tilde. It's it's the the back tick is what I would call that. The, the, right, right. Yeah. So cool. That's handy. Thank you very much for uh, for sending that in. All right. Uh, and Allison, I believe it's the same Allison. It is. Uh, has a quick tip for us. She said. I heard the listener talking about how Dropbox rocks and I have two more reasons why it does. I have a MacBook Pro with a one terabyte drive, so I keep gobs of big stuff in Dropbox, but I also have a 12-inch MacBook with a 512 gig drive. Dropbox's selective sync feature lets me have some stuff sync between my Macs, but the big stuff doesn't have to. iCloud is all or nothing, so I can't really use it for the big stuff. The second reason is also about big stuff. I do uh, screencast for Don McAllister's Screencast Online. A typical file size is about four gigs by the time I'm done. Dropbox, however, is smart enough to sync the files from within the ScreenFlow package file as I create them, so it's constantly keeping Dropbox up to date. When I'm done with the video, Don doesn't have to wait for it to upload because it's already finished when I'm done. Uh, two things, these two things add together. I can create these four gig files, uh, in my screencast account on my Mac, but flip back to the main account for editing. And they're all right there. Of course, we doubled the storage. So yeah, very cool. Thank you, Allison. That's good stuff. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, BitTorrent sync will also, uh, do that with the selective sync option makes it very easy to, to choose which folders you want to sync on which computer. 
So that's good. Uh, good stuff. Thanks, Allison. And finally, from our tips department, I think. Yep. Uh, listener Bob. Different Bob, I believe. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Bob has a uh, quick story. He says this, this is a story about the importance of isolation testing, or as we like to call it here, honoring the troubleshooting process. My home ISP connection is provisioned at 75 megabits per second, which I confirmed on May 6th when my iPhone Ookla speed test app said I was getting 89 megabits per second. Great. But now I'm getting at best 30 megabits per second and at times less than five. My setup is a cable modem in the basement. Um, ethernet to an ethernet outlet on my first floor and then a patch cable from that to my router. He says, so there's, there's ethernet in the walls here. It's important to remember. He says, I tried swapping out the router with an older airport extreme power cycling, the cable modem. So it accepts the new Mac, no improvement. Next. I connected my MacBook pro MacBook pro directly to the basement cable modem. Again, power cycling. I got 90 megabits a second. So the ISP is not responsible. Moving to the first floor, I took the Ethernet patch cable from the router and plugged it into my MacBook Pro. I got a lousy 30-ish megabits per second. Now it looks like a wiring problem. Before I called the electrician, I tried a different Ethernet patch cable. Boom. My MacBook Pro was doing 90 megabits a second. It was the Ethernet patch cable. This is the same patch cable I've been using for years. Uh, same patch cable that I was using back in May when I got the good speed test. Point of my story is that you must isolate and eliminate each component in the network so that you can correctly identify the problem. No matter, no matter how much you think it could never be that. And it's true. That's the, that's the point of the troubleshooting process. If, if you're, if our guts were right all the time and they often are, I mean, it's good to start with the thing that your gut tells you, but, um, but when that strikes out uh, or your gut tells you that you got to rip walls open, then wait before you rip the walls open and test the other things that are easier. Uh, because you never know. Now, if available, so if the the troublesome cable happened to be plugged into the computer, so a couple of places to look that I found useful. So one is that network utility on the Mac um, could give you a heads up as to a bad cable, and, and you'll see some things that should concern you. If you run network utility and then do info and look at the interface, there's going to be a couple of numbers here that should never get beyond zero. And they're send errors and receive errors. Um, it'll also say link status and link speed. You may want to make sure uh, that they are what you expect, expect them to be. Otherwise, it could be you've got a dodgy cable. Right, um, right. I've also found that most, uh, unless you have a totally dumb switch, then a lot of switches uh, slash routers uh, may also offer statistics based on... Uh, What's plugged in each port? Like the the one that I have is actually kind of neat. The TP Link they actually have a uh, a feature that actually buzz out each cable. It actually tests it and it'll say, okay, well I I think it's about this long based on you know the resistance and wow. stuff, which actually is kind of cool. So so how say, does it do that? Do you plug the cable the same cable <clears throat> into the router twice? Like you plug it into two ports and it buzzes it out? Um, the, the the software for the switch itself has a status on or has has a, a test feature where it'll it'll check each port and it'll tell you yes there's a cable plugged in here and by right. the way I think it's about this long huh? and it's and it's working wow that's I mean cool. you can tell electrically you know I guess how how long the uh, yeah, cable is or how long sure. it should be sure wow but um that's but I think cool. it also show it also shows statistics per port and and it shows something similar that you know here's the number of good packets number of bad packets right. you, you may it, it's normal, I think, sometimes to maybe see one or two bad packets. 
Because then what's happening is whatever the device is, is doing its job. It's like, yeah. well, this was corrupt. Can I have another one? But if you see that number like exploding, then yeah, either the port is bad or the cable is bad. I, um, I, I had, while we're on this subject, I had a weird network issue where I thought um, one of the ports on one of my, it was, this was, it was a power line uh, device, but I thought one of the ports went bad on it. And I'm like testing with my laptop. And because I was using my laptop, uh, it, which is a MacBook Air and doesn't have an Ethernet port, I was using an external, uh, in this case, a Thunderbolt to gigabit Ethernet adapter. And so I'm like, maybe my adapter wore out. So I tried another one and I plugged in a USB, uh, USB two to Ethernet, an old one that I had, and it worked fine. I'm like, okay, crap, man, that sucks. Well, my adapter was fine. When I was doing some different testing, I had gone into uh, system preferences, network, and then that adapter. So Ethernet, advanced hardware. And I had changed it from configure automatically to configure manually. And I had told it to only use uh, a thousand base T, I think. And for whatever reason, this particular adapter that I was, or this particular power line thing I was testing, it was an old, old one, um, was only a hundred megabit port. So it couldn't negotiate with it. And, uh, and of course, as soon as I changed it to automatically, everything was fine. But, you know, my point is, even when the device is removed, OS 10 on that machine remembers, oh, that device should only be used in, you know, whatever it was configured to the last time I saw it. So it was um, it was set to, you know, to be forced to thousand base T or whatever. And and you can do that. I think it was when I was testing out uh, a problematic port over here in the office or something, but it can be helpful for testing. Like if you think you've got a bad cable or a bad port on the, you know, on the switch you're connecting to. You can force your Mac to say only do 100 base T or only do, you know, gigabit if it supports that, which most of them do now. Dude, that'd be an awesome trick to play on people like in the oh, office. Yeah. It's to like slow down their, their yeah. port by, you know, a couple of, you know, by an order of magnitude. Down. Yeah. <laughs> knock it down, you know, yeah. one or two. Uh... Yeah, that'd be hilarious. Oh, then, um... yeah. Good times. Yeah, there is. You knew exactly where to look. Everything would appear to be working. Yeah. And even if you know where to look, yeah, thinking to look there. I mean, clearly I was the one that changed this. But, you know, you forget about this stuff is the problem. Um, I've also as 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 we're doing this on my iMac in the in the studio here, I see it. it, This one has a checkbox for AVB slash EAV mode, which I think is the energy star, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's on by default, but if you have problems connecting to a switch, turning that off can be uh, the, a smart move at times. So I'll just point that out. And so you would set it to configure manually and then set it to auto select. And I really shouldn't be messing around with my Ethernet settings while we're, uh, while we're podcasting here, should yeah, I? I'm looking. <laughs> yeah, I have that checkbox checked as well. And yeah, I also it's have fine my for MT. most switches, but, but there's some, yeah. I think it was some... I want to say, I don't think it was Netgear. It wasn't D-Link. It was somebody. I had, I had some switches that, that did not respond well uh, with that. They tried to negotiate it, and it just didn't do well. Interesting. Yeah. And I changed the uh, MTU. I know I you do. do that. Yeah, because you want to do that. That's right. Yeah. Only when it causes it, it trouble. It makes things better. Sure it does. Yeah. <laughs> I assure you it does. Yeah. That's right, my friend. In theory, it does. It makes things different is, yeah. um, is correct. 
you know, there you go. Yep. Yep. Um, I want to talk about our, uh, our two sponsors here, if I can, John, if that's okay. Oh, yes. Is that okay with you? All right. Yes. Uh, our first sponsor today is, as I mentioned, Otherworld Computing at MacSales.com. Anytime it's time to upgrade my computer, uh, this is the first place I look. They have all the cables, all the, uh, the enclosures that I would need, all of that stuff. And they make some cool stuff for geeks. Uh, you know, well, one thing that's cool, we were talking in the pre-show about, um, raid and, and collecting, you know, discs together and they bundle soft raid with all of their, um, all of their, their, their multi-bay units. So you can pull all of these things together with this killer software and you don't have to use OS tens built-in stuff that that's a little frankly um feature lacking if you will and and in some versions of os 10 just doesn't even appear at all so soft rate is bundled with what they do there and it makes perfect sense to check that out so that's one thing the other one is they've got all these drive adapters some of these things are, are killer uh like the voyager right this is a great thing to have sitting on your desk the Voyager, you can get the USB three, uh, Voyager S three, and it's thirty bucks, right? And you put this thing on your desk, and you can just drop a bare metal drive into it, and it can be a, uh, a you know a large full size drive, the three and a half inch drive, or a little you know two and a half inch laptop size or SSD size drive. You just pop it in, and that's it. You don't have to mount it in an enclosure to do anything with it. It's really handy if you've got an old drive. That you you know, especially for you folks that are consultants and helping people all the time, you might need to constantly be looking at these drives, and it it's a pain to like have to leave an enclosure open and be pulling cables around. This thing's got all the ports in the right places. You literally just drop it in, hit the power button, it spins up and mounts on your desktop. Or if it's got if the drive has some problems, you can do your maintenance on it or whatever, and uh, it's connected over USB three. And it's 30 bucks for the enclosure or for the, 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 it's not even an enclosure. That's the thing. It just sits there and that's what it's purpose built to do. You got to check this stuff out. They have all kinds of cool things like this. Makes life really, really easy for you. Uh, visit maxsales.com and, uh, and when you're checking out, uh, tell them we sent you because they, they like to know that. So our thanks to other, other, <laughs> easy for me to say, our thanks to other world computing. I'm all choked up. Because I love them so much at MaxSales.com for sponsoring this episode. Another company that I love so much, Barebones Software at Barebones.com. BB Edit is a piece of software that, like this week, man, I couldn't possibly have lived without. We mentioned earlier in the show that I was doing the whole uh, HTTPS migration. That meant changing lots of different files. And what it meant doing was opening up a bunch of files and then finding all the instances of HTTP in them, because we had like all sorts of things that were pulling from various resources. And, you know, we had hard coded HTTP, HTTP into a lot of these, you know, decades ago. And what's cool is you can uh, do a multi-file find and replace in BB edit. So you have one window open. You can do it on a per window basis, or you can just check multiple files. The interface makes total sense. So I got, I, I got 
like 150 files all open in, in one window because you can have them, uh, you know, kind of all set like that. And it shows you in the sidebar the files. And then I opened up the multi-file find and replace feature and I told it what I wanted to look for. So in this case, I was looking for, you know, something like I wanted to find images. So I looked for source SRC equals quote HTTP colon. And that would find me everything. And I've had it find them. And I looked, I'm like, yep, that's what I'm looking for. And then I went back and told it, all right, that's what I want. That's the, that's the group now replace them. And if you're a regex guy or a girl, you can use regular expressions in BB edits, uh, multi-file find and replace regular expressions, uh, scare the life out of me. I don't know why it's something that, uh, I've used many times, but I can't seem to, it's not a language that is, has become native for me. So, uh, so I only use them when I have to, but, uh, but if you use them, you can do them in BB edits, multi-file find and replace. So you got to check it out. BB edit from Barebones software at barebones.com. You can go download a free trial. Our thanks to the folks at Barebones software for sponsoring this episode. Fun stuff. All right, John. We've got some questions to answer. Don't you think? Absolutely. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Another listener, Mike, different Mike, uh, sent in a question and... You know, because PDF and printing PDFs from mail sucks, I can't actually see what uh, what listener Mike wrote. So I'm going to try and find his actual question in our email here because uh, there it is. I found it. Okay. So uh, Mike wrote, I know I used to do this, but I don't seem to be able to do it anymore. I have a number of PDFs on my MacBook that I want to have on my iPhone. I add the PDF to iBooks on the MacBook. And when I wire the iPhone to the MacBook, I want to pick the PDFs to copy over and then do a sync. But I can only see PDFs that came from the iTunes store, iTunes U. An internet search yields a bunch of old uh, and new how-tos. One of the newer ones says that you can sync it with iCloud, but I can't see where to do that. How do I solve this problem? Well, you're right uh, that iCloud is probably your best option. And when you first launch iBooks, on your Mac or when you first launched iBooks on your Mac after you had whatever version of the OS supported this iCloud syncing, it asked you, do you want to use iCloud to do this? And if you said yes, then it would most likely still be doing that. But you also had the option to say no. And if you said no and then decided, say now, that you wanted to enable that and started hunting around all the iBooks preferences, you wouldn't find a darn thing. And that's because it's not there. You have to go to System Preferences, iCloud, iCloud Drive, click the little Options button, and look if the iBooks box is checked. As soon as you check it, iBooks will pop up and say, hey, do you want to use iCloud to sync your books? Like, yeah, that's why I checked the box over there. And then once you do that, yeah, your PDFs, your your personal PDFs will just sync uh, over iCloud magically. It's not that magic, but, you know, feels like that. Pretty interesting, huh, John? There's a lot of things listed in iCloud Drive options. That's sneaky. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. I don't know why. They, I mean, I get it. I, I get why they're here, but I feel like, just like with PhotoStream and all of that, there should be an option in iBooks to enable this. As it should, be, it should modify the same setting, but this is one of those cases where I feel like having it in two places is actually a good thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm looking here. All uh, everything that I have in that list is checked. Okay. Curious why that was not checked. Yeah, and it's not just Apple stuff. I mean, any app can register itself here. Like I've got, uh, you know, I've got all the Apple stuff. I've got iBooks. I've got Photos Agent and GarageBand and Messages. Uh, but I also have Textual, which is an IRC client we were testing out, and PDF Pen Pro, and One Password. All of that uh, is here. I have a uh, Spot Maps. What's Spot Maps, John? Oh, that's something we talked about a while ago. It's a it's a network. Uh, oh, utility. oh yeah yeah yeah. Huh? Cool. Uh, the company. Uh, but yeah, it's it. it it's it you know Equinix. it's Equinix. Oh, Equinox. Oh, okay. Equinox. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, they cool. make a, they make several uh very nice uh yeah, I think this will do actually live network maps. <laughs> yeah, I remember this static, now. And then yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you you run it it'll do a discovery and then you can uh create a nice uh, network diagram. But yeah, so they have uh uh an option to save your your stuff to the cloud. Nice. Very nice. That's cool. Yeah, huh? Cool. Well, just like you, all the I, I'm uh, well, I'm not surprised by you know like one password and stuff. Like sure, that. but yeah, it's it's one of these lists that's worth looking at. Uh, you know, especially you know, it's it's it. This kind of stuff can can help you identify cruft. Like I'm looking here, and when I see textual, it's like, oh yeah, I could I could go and delete not only the app but that data. I don't. You know, I didn't wind up using textual. I I went and actually I used Colloquy. I found a beta version that works with El Capitan and doesn't crater our machines simultaneously, John. Right. <laughs> like it did a couple of months ago. Yeah, it was awesome. Oh, that was it was fun though. Yeah. Um yeah, runway right. process. It's always fun track Oh yeah. Well, especially, you know, when your computer's locking up because of the runaway process. It's you know, yeah, it's good. All right. Um kind of Along the same lines, listener Larry has a uh, a question, and I believe he asked about this on Facebook too. Um, and and so there's a good discussion happening there. But we can we can kind of throw uh, things around here. John Larry writes, "I'm having difficulty with how iTunes and Apple Music handles audiobooks. When I say audiobooks, I must clarify. I have some lecture tapes I converted from cassette to digital files. They were originally AACs, and back in the day." of manually managing my music, I could put them in a playlist and check the remember last position checkbox so that when I resumed, I didn't need to go back to the beginning. Uh, In the latest incarnation of iTunes, my last position is not remembered nor synced across devices. I figured I would turn them into audiobooks and control them that way, taking advantage of the 15 second rewind and fast forward. I am at a loss for how to get them from my Mac to my iPhone. In iTunes, it says they are not eligible for iCloud music library. I have tried unsuccessfully making them podcasts as well. I did this. Uh, I did find this awesome audiobook managing app called Bookmobile, soon to be submitted as a cool stuff found. Uh, but I'm having issues getting it to cooperate with me transferring these files. Uh, I feel there should be an easy way. So yeah, it it there are lots of reasons that things might not be eligible for um, iCloud uh, music library. And w- one thing, and I think you're doing this. But um, the the first thing to do is go to file, get info and options. And you can do this either on a per file basis or you can select multiple files and do it and change the media type to audiobook. I think you've already done that, but I just want to make sure that, you know, folks listening understand that that's that's one way to do this. And then while you're there, you can check the remember last playback position in order to get them to sync to iCloud, though, I think 
um, you're it's sometimes the file format is incompatible with iCloud. So you may need to take all of these and convert them to something. When you go into iTunes, uh, things, things get interesting. So if you go into iTunes and settings where it says when a CD is inserted, there is an import settings dot, dot, dot box, click that. And what you set here is what will be used when you're choosing to convert things from anywhere, not just from a CD. So you could set it to Apple lossless. You probably don't need the files to be that big, but I know that the Apple lossless stuff will get uploaded to iCloud, albeit as, as 256K AACs. So you could set it to that too. You could change the AAC encoder and just change it to say spoken podcast, or if you want higher quality, you could use iTunes Plus. And if you're using one of their standard formats, then then you could just highlight, once you've got that set, highlight all the songs that you want to convert and go to the, oh, I always forget where it is. Maybe it's in the, yeah, it's in the um, file menu, go to convert, and then it'll say to create AAC version if you've chosen AAC or create Apple lossless version is what it'll say. And, uh, and you should be able to change those. And then once that conversion's done, I think iCloud Music Library will take it. I think. I think, John. What do you think? I think they're pouring. <laughs> but you actually did bring a, you know, I only, yeah, I haven't done a lot with uh, audiobooks. I did look here. And so in uh, iTunes and one of my machines here. So when I click on the audiobooks menu, I actually do have one. Um, and then, yeah, if you go to the options tab, media kind lets you... Uh, right. Boy, what a mess. Because <laughs> off the top of my head, I don't know the benefits of each uh, particular format there. So, yeah. In order to, in order to get uh, make your stuff more accessible, that... That I guess is a good place to look. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's that's where we told him to go first. But I think he was already there. I, I, you know, I think that's where he changed it to be an audiobook, but it still wouldn't sync. And and in that case, then it, I really believe it's just the format of the file. Uh, there are some files that won't sync. They might be. I've seen files that are too like that where the bit rate is too low. I think it. You know, I had some files that were at like thirty two k per second or something, and it, iCloud Music Library wouldn't take them. You had to, you know convert them up which is weird will run for fun in the chat room says uh i just put them in dropbox and then import them into overcast and do it that way i had no idea you could do that with overcast that's pretty cool so thanks for uh thanks for that uh, that suggestion it's good stuff all right john jason had a uh he had a bit of a security breach can we can we, can we i know we're doing a deep dive on uh uh, next week's show, because I'm traveling, we'll do a deep dive on backups, but I feel like this one might might take longer than a normal segment, but uh, but I think it'll be fun. Shall we? Surely. All right. Jason uh, says, my tale of woe. For the last several years, I've used Dynamic DNS to point to my home desktop. I keep it on a static IP on my home network and do a port forwarding to my desktop on my LAN using DMZ, which basically means any unsolicited packets forward them to this one computer. Uh, He says that way I can access my desktop from anywhere that I am. I use Apple remote desktop on my laptop and I teleport on my iPhone and iPad to VNC into my iMac. And here's where I got into trouble. 
I use the same short four letter with two numbers password for my VNC access that I use for the admin account password on my iMac. I noticed a few months ago in my console that there were many failed attempts to log into my VNC server, but I figured I would be okay. This morning, I was getting ready for work when I heard some odd sounds from my office. Uh Uh-oh. I looked at my office and was shocked to see that not only was my iMac screen active, but the mouse was moving around. There was a browser window open and someone was attempting to buy Amazon gift cards with my account. In another window, this person was having a chat with an Amazon customer service rep and trying to cancel the order. I immediately turned off my remote access and my file sharing and then turned off DMZ on my router. I looked at my Amazon history and didn't see any orders, so I thought I was fine. But then I looked at archived orders and discovered that this person had ordered about 500 bucks worth of gift cards and then archived them so I wouldn't notice. Uh, He says, uh, so let's talk about what I did wrong. Obviously, my password should have been longer and harder to guess. Also, I should have had a different password for VNC than I do for my Mac user account. As you've often mentioned, there is a continuum between security and convenience, and I clearly leaned too far one way. Um, What could I do to avoid this and still have remote access in a safer manner? Okay. It was ironic that uh, this happened, uh, that I got this email because it came in about Literally like five minutes after I decided, you know, my disk station is exposed to the world and I have a five letter with no numbers password for the admin account on it. Uh, I should change that. Uh, So I did, thankfully, um, before I got into any trouble. But we all make those decisions. And yeah, sometimes we have to think about the implications of them. So um, in terms of what you could do to be more protected i really think a vpn is your answer because what you've done is you've opened up essentially your mac to the entire outside world by doing dmz and as you found that that that's it's just a a bad idea so your router will effectively act as a a a firewall not perhaps the most robust one but it will act as one and, and keep your machine safe unless you tell your router not to which which you did um, a VPN allows you to tunnel in to your network and then act as you. But that VPN, uh, A, would have a different password than your max password, or at least should have a different password than your max password, and can keep you secure. And, and he mentioned that he's using a Netgear R7000 router, um, and even the default Netgear firmware supports uh, at least open VPN, if not uh, other VPNs as well. So... That would that would be my suggestion, because once you're connected to a VPN, then it's as though you're on your local network and can do anything you want. Uh, but in order to log into your Mac from there, you need a second password. So that would that would be my um, that would be my thoughts about that, John. I want to talk about some other things, but let's let's stick on this one for right now. What do you think? I'm trying to. Th- Figure out what, you know, I think the problem here was the, the VNC connection or yeah, not uh, one of the connections that was made. It, it would seem pretty clear was not encrypted or very well encrypted. And that's where I think this person picked up your uh, information. Um, I guess is they just hacked it. Or they could have. Yeah. Or they yeah. could have, or, or they could have, uh, yeah. Or they, or they just stumbled across your system and said, Oh look, this ports stuff in. That's cool. Yeah. Which yeah. is, Pretty much trivial. So, so actually, another um, you know possible suggestion for when you're setting up 
remote access, because sometimes you'll have to have the ports open, is to maybe use non-standard ports. Right. Well, he had, actually, his problem with DMZ was he had every port open. Right, he, right. He just took the easy approach, and and yeah, you just need to be a little more specific. And I, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't even do that. I wouldn't open up ports to to go directly to any one of my computers, um, unless you need your computer's server exposed to everyone on the internet. But if it's just you, VPN is much better, or just you and family members, uh, or coworkers, or whatever it is. VPN is much better. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I'm just offering yeah. you know, some additional. Yeah, I mean, the, the yeah, the way I have it set up is, yeah, I have a VPN. So, of course, that port is open uh, on my external IP address. The VPN uh, is. Yes. Yes, correct. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, and, and while I'm, we're I'm the, just mentioning that because, the, you know, there are some other ways, uh, you know, SSH and some other ways to get to your computer from the outside and... For example, even Synology, uh, you know, I, I was kind of impressed with their latest software. They, they have a little security advisor and they said, oh, um, yeah, you know, uh, SSH is on the standard port. You may want to move that because, um, you know, people are looking for that sort of thing. Right. Just like somebody was looking for or verified that a uh, VNC or remote access connection was available in this you know, device. And it was like, oh, yay me. Right. <laughs> and yeah. then they started beating on it. Now, you know, it was... Um, I mean, the other thing that occurs to me is that, you know, they, they saw the attempts in here, but uh, it was only because they had looked at the logs. Yeah. Um, you yeah, know, OS I think 10, some products will be a bit you. more. Yeah. Yeah. I think some, yeah, and we, we'd have to survey the products here. I mean, I think there are products that could tell you that, Hey, you know, by the way, well, either, you know, a firewall or, you know, router that has tools that'll detect that you know that's a, a another thing when i was perusing the latest synology is that their fire or was it my router no it could have been my router also i mean the, the r- routers or, or network devices can prevent um i mean i tried to was it on my tp thing but but you know they have features to say okay you know d- tell me if somebody uh, is trying to do a denial of service or right. if there, you know too many attempts to access something here or here. Well, yeah, you, the problem is your Mac is more. not really built to be uh, fully exposed to the internet. No, no, it, no. You know, it's just like your router is, and is, is meant to sort of deny all the standard stuff, unless you go out of your way to tell it not to, but, but out of the box, most routers are relatively secure just because of the way they are going to route traffic. Um, it's not the end all be all, but it's a pretty good start and for a lot of folks might be a pretty good finish as well. But yeah, you gotta, you gotta, um, I really think a VPN is the answer. If your router supports it super easy, right? Just set it up on there and then you'd set up your iOS devices and your Macs to connect to the VPN. And then once you're connected to that, you can talk to all your computers on your home network as though you're there. It's really kind of convenient, uh, especially for managing things remotely. If your router does not support VPN, then you would need to look at either OS 10 server, which will support VPN and, and let you run a VPN server. And then, as John said, you would just forward the specific VPN port or ports to that device. You wouldn't DMZ that device. You would just f- forward those ports and nothing else. And um, and that can work. But with with OS 10 server, you've also got to be careful. Your VPN password is also your login password. 
So think about that when you're, you know, deciding what to give access to on the, on the VPN. And, and if you don't, if, if you have a Synology, right, that they will, as you are doing, John, and I'm doing it actually now too, uh, Synology supports various types of VPN servers running on it. And again, you just forward those ports to it and, and be done with that. And then, and then you're off to the races and you can do whatever you want. But, uh, but it does make it quite a bit safer. Um, <clears throat> Many routers have supported a very easy pro- VPN protocol called PPTP, point-to-point tunneling protocol. Unfortunately, Apple uh, is taking that away from us in Mac OS Sierra and iOS 10. So if you're using a router that supports PPTP, you need to find another VPN solution before you upgrade to iOS 10 or Mac OS Sierra. And OS 10 server will do uh, various types of VPN that are more secure, of course, no surprise there. Uh, your Synology will as well. Uh, I've been using uh, L2TP and IPsec because it's very easy to set up and you don't need a third-party client to do that on macOS or, or, um, or, or iOS. With your Netgear R7000 router, I believe the default firmware supports something called OpenVPN, which works great, but there is no native Mac OS or iOS support for that. You have to get third-party support. No, but that's what, what you do, right, John? What, what apps do you use for, for that? On OS X, TunnelBlick. Okay. And on iOS, uh, it's called Open OpenVPN. Just OpenVPN. Okay. Yeah. And the, the, the worst part in either case, uh, the, you know, it's pretty easy. Sure. Um, the, the, there's a standard set of documents certificate and some information file that you have to put on each system that you want to be a client. Um, and then that's always your fish shake about this. It is. Yep. Uh, not as convenient. Um, right. Right. But uh, it, it, the other thing that occurs to me too, what could have prevented this is use a password manager that generates good passwords. <laughs> it took me a while to, to get on the uh, 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 last pass, jump on the last past bandwagon but i did eventually yeah i was convinced um and it would have no doubt warned you hey your password kind of sucks you may want to change it which <laughs> it has a mode that does that basically yeah i'm still yeah. going through it you know at one point it's like yeah um you probably shouldn't have the same password on all these different on 75 different to. logins like, yeah. ah good idea yeah. and, it, and it'll offer to uh but that's not going to change that would not he, he could be like the best one password or last pass user in the world. And that would not have solved this problem because last pass and one password aren't managing well, the passwords of your Mac. Well, they could no, or you could use it to create a good password. You, you okay. could, you could use it to generate one, but you know, your password for your Mac almost by definition has to be something you can memorize. Um, and that, that's sort of the problem, right? You, you have to be able to type that in from memory. A password manager is not going to help you with, with that. Mm-hmm. When you turn on your computer, John. Yes, I, I understand no, right? what you're you know saying. What I mean? so, yeah, you don't have to explain it. Like <laughs> I, I thought you were, <laughs> I thought you were going to disagree. No. Okay. I, I'm, I'm trying to present the concept of generating a complex I, password. Yeah. And no, uh, you, you're absolutely 100% correct that the password managers we use do not directly interface with the OS yeah. to do that. Yeah, he, I get it, but, no, but I, they can be used. Sure. And, and actually, Apple has gotten better you know, in their various programs with this, is that in a lot of cases when you're generating a password, it's, it's, it'll give you a little you know, status bar you know, showing. You know, right. 
yeah. green, yellow, red, you know, regarding here's how good a job you did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and Paul's right. I don't know if um, Paul friends in the chat room notes that one password certainly and LastPass might do this uh, has the option to create passwords that are based on uh, words that are formed with or, or combinations of letters that are formed with vowels in places that make the end result pronounceable. So essentially made up words. Yes. And does LastPass do that too? I know they have. Yeah. There, there's a checkbox that. Yeah. When you're generating a password. Yeah, right. Okay. Make it more humanable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that might be a, that might be a good thing for your login password, something that you can say and remember, but isn't based on dictionary words. Um, so, yeah, that could be helpful uh, along these lines. Uh, and this is where it gets a little more scary. Listener Jason asked not only what he could do to secure things, but what he needs to worry about. Um, because there's no real logs of what these people did on his computer. There's some, I mean, you found, you know, the Amazon trail and you could look in your browser history and find other things, but he asked what else could be, could have been compromised. He said, I know I need to change my Amazon password, but what else? And you're not going to like what I'm about to say, but that person got your login password, which is also the password that's used to secure your keychain. So if they were smart enough to have thought to download a copy of your keychain, they have every password that's in there. And I know that's a horrible thing to, to realize, but the next, but, but perhaps for all of us and Jason included uh, the next time we think about creating a uh, too easy to remember and too easy to type password for our Mac login. Remember that that's, basically protecting all of your safari pa if you if you choose to save passwords in iCloud keychain um you know they are stored and synced locally and so you you know think about that it's not easy mm -hmm. but now the other thing you could do though this i think it's out kind of outside of the realm of consumer electronics but you could do multi-factor authentication when you log in remotely using something like a secure id or um I, yeah, I haven't surveyed that true. space in a in a. Uh, I think so OS Ten server supports that at some level. I want to right. Say it's called. Do. I think they call it Radius. So um, yeah, yeah. What we're talking about is that you can increase your security by requiring people to jump through multiple hoops to get into your system. And one thing uh, that I've seen used in the corporate space is it's a little device that you have, and it it, it generates a number, and it's synchronized with a server on the mm. other end and it changes every minute. And unless you have this device, you're not going to remotely access the system in question. It's just that simple. And that device <laughs> but, can um, be replaced with an app. If, if you yes. want to go that route, you know, an iOS app or something. Um, yeah. That's something I have to look a bit more for, uh, you know, what would they have in the consumer space for that? Cause it's really, cause you, you got to manage it and you know, it can be a pain in the neck. Yeah. Yeah. So Jason, I hope, uh, I hope we've helped get things more secure and I'm sorry that, uh, that this happened. It sucks. It really does. It's uh, but it's the world we live in and, and be really thoughtful about what is exposed to the outside world for people that want to try and poke their way in, uh, especially things that, that have you authenticated into them. So, all right. Um, let's, um, 
I don't know where to go from here, John. You know, I got a new toy uh, that I started playing with. Maybe we should talk a little bit about that. It's not going to be the it's not going to be the last time or, or the most exhaustive uh, thing to do. But uh, you know, it being the year of the router, it's still the year of the router, right? Even though it's been a little while since we talked about the uh, you know the the um, I don't know lots of routers. Ubiquity's Amplify is just starting to hit, hit the market. And that is their answer to consumer-grade Wi-Fi mesh, okay? Ubiquity has been making enterprise-grade Wi-Fi mesh for a long time. And in recent years, uh, some of their, uh, I'll say, lower-priced um, or, or sort of slightly less crazy um, in terms of functionality enterprise stuff has been well within the reach of consumers and lots of consumers have been implementing it, but it's been that same sort of it's geekier than most people want to have to deal with. Uh, but it gets you that true, you know, Wi-Fi mesh. And, and so uh, the folks at ubiquity took note of this and created a product that they call amplify. That's a M P L I F I. And this is a uh, totally built for consumers managed with an iOS app, wireless mesh. And I use the term mesh, but we'll talk about, I I, have to, I need to get some questions answered before we really call it a mesh. Uh, I know there other stuff is mesh. I don't know if this is truly mesh, but, uh, but the idea is you want to bathe your home in Wi-Fi and never think about it again. Uh, so similar to what we've talked about with Eero, right? It's that it's in fact, targeting the, the, basically the you know the same end goal and the amplify stuff is pretty cool so it's um unlike the euro where the euro is just three uh you, in the in the kit that you get you know it's three of the same device and any one of them could be used as the router and then the others can be your extensions the amplify stuff the router is very very different from the extensions and is actually kind of cool it looks like a little alarm clock cube and in fact it even displays the time on it um, in addition to other details about your network, if you want, but it's very cute. It looks good out in the open. Um, and it's got, you know, full uh, 802.11 AC three by three radios in it and all of that good stuff. Uh, you can figure it with an app. It uses Bluetooth, uh, to kind of find the unit and then get things rolling. And once you set up and it's, you know, what you would expect from Wi-Fi setup, it asks you what you want to name your network and what you want your password to be. And, uh, and then it's up and running and then it says, do you want to add these little, um, they're, they're extenders, if you will, or, or mesh access points. They're built to be plugged directly into the wall and they hang off the wall uh, or they, they sit on the wall, but it's pretty cool. They're, um, they, they've got a three prong outlet, so it's a little weird in terms of orientation because the, the device sticks one way very in, a, in maybe, I don't know, six inches uh, off the outlet. But it's it's on a magnetic ball joint, so you can actually move it around or even remove it uh, without causing any problems. And it, it plugs into the wall. So if you're if your outlets are it's built to aim up from the plug. But if your outlets use new building code where the ground is uh, the three prong ground is above the others, then it aims down. Uh, and that's just the way this is. But it seems to work fine. I have I have all my outlets uh, oriented so that it would aim down and it works fine. And they just connect. Uh, and and then they're, you know, sharing Wi-Fi around. And I've gotten great speeds with it. It was very, very easy to set up. 
it does. The interface of the app is great because it, Oh, it has everything right there. It's not overly complex. It shows you what you want, but if you want to dig a little bit, some of that more geeky stuff is there. You can, uh, you can do something called band steering, which it supports out of the box uh, and is enabled, which will automatically from the router steer clients to uh, the five gigahertz band so that they get better throughput if that band is available to them. So it's, it's actively doing this. And I believe I always confuse what 802.11K, 802.11V, and 802.11R do, but I believe that's 802.11V is being used to do that. So it's actually a negotiation with the client and doing that. And then you can also turn on what's called router steering, which is off by default, but that will have it connect to the base station uh, as a priority, as opposed to one of the um, extenders or the access points, if... uh, if it can, because you get, you know, better speed because you're not doing the whole double Wi-Fi hop. Um, bridge mode works great. Uh, it'll do universal plug and play. It'll do device reservations and all managed from the iOS app. Very, very simple and very easy. Uh, it's, it, I, I really kind of like it. It does local DNS, which means that like once you're, if your iMac connects and you're, the name of your iMac is like John's iMac, then you could go to the terminal and choose ping John's iMac and it automatically, you know, has registered that in its, its uh, DNS entry, which is really cool. Um, which is very, very, that, that's to me, that's the feature that I need to have in a router. And I know it sounds crazy, but once you've got it, you can't go back. Uh, my question is, and I got to ask them this, I only set it up yesterday. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk more about it, but I'm, I'm not sure if it's truly a mesh I don't know if it's using 802.11R to manage the handoff of the device from one point to the other. It, I mean, it sounds like with this router steering, it might be, but I've seen some reports where people say it's not using that, which it just doesn't make sense to me given everything else that Ubiquity does. Uh, so I got to get that question answered. But the end result of it has been very, very you know complete coverage, as you would expect. Um, I've got the HD unit. That's what they sent me. The base station with all of their units it is fully 802.11ac and then they've got i think three levels uh where the extenders are either and i'm probably using the wrong word extenders and they're cringing every time i say that uh but the extenders in the hd unit uh it's 349 for that uh are um also ac but in the lower priced ones i think they've got one for 199 where the extenders are just 802.11n but uh and you know, in, ter- in terms of just general Wi-Fi, that's not a, that's not necessarily a deal killer. And at that price, that's pretty aggressive. So, with especially with Eero being like four ninety nine, Eero's a little different. These don't have Ethernet on their um, on the extension units. So, if you have wiring in your walls anywhere, these won't take advantage of it. And also, they won't let you plug in, you know, something like your you, you know your Xbox or your your TV or whatever into the you know, into the extender, which the Eero will let you do. It, it truly creates that mesh. So, um, so I got to learn more about it, but this is very cool. And at the price, very, very cool. Cause you know, you're just going to get great Wi-Fi. That's, that's been my experience. So any thoughts, John? Nice. You differentiate a little bit between, uh, I'm, I'm curious now because uh, you, you have, <clears throat> you've tried numerous products that all do these, uh, as you said, I like, bathe you in wi-fi bathe you that's uh, the goal right yeah that's <laughs> that's it they're not you know bathe you with a liquid 
No, they bathe, bathe your you home. With, bathe, yes. you, bathe you uh, in RF. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, we're bathed in RF whether we have Wi-Fi at our homes or not. I think it's, I think it's good for us to remember that. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, if you can use your cell phone, you're bathed in RF. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, and it's, you know, and that's when, when I'm, when I talk about the year of the router, that's, this is the type of stuff that excites me because as I said, you know, you could have done this 10 years ago. I did this 10 years ago, uh, but it's a pain in the neck. Nobody actually, you know, wants to have to manage it unless you just enjoy the geeky part, which, and that's, <laughs> of course, nothing wrong with that. But most folks are going to just want to, you know, write a check and plug the stuff in and not think about it anymore and just have reliable Wi-Fi. And, and that's what we're getting in, in uh, 2016 here, which is really exciting. It's good. But uh, yeah, any, any, any questions about it? I'm looking at my notes here. But uh, yeah, these, these external antennas, the texture, they're white. And they look good against the wall, you know. They're they're it's good stuff, but in the, the texture of it's really cool. It's like this almost creamy kind of thing. It's pretty good. Thoughts? Questions, John? I mean, the ones you've talked about. So they're the, uh, all right. So the Eero is all right. So you mentioned that all right. It's not wired, but all of these are they all? Were they, was this system also three, uh, units? Yes. A base and then a base and extensions Two. Yeah. I I should look this up because I know they're going to, um, they're going to kill me for calling them extensions if they don't call them extensions. Cause it's really, I guess extension. I don't know. It is the right word. (laughs) I don't know. I gather with this. I just don't want folks confused because there's, there's these range extenders that, that you can buy third, you know, third party range extenders. And, and there's been, you know, very mixed results with those. And this is, um, they call these the mesh points. So that's what these, these, yeah. And now both systems, if you want to, so they come, so I guess the, uh, the, the, the starter kit includes three of something. They all include three. And that was one of my questions. How can you more them? How can I don't you, know that you can. Or can you? Yeah. Like Eero, I mean, is it, is three all you get? Like, or do no. you buy like another one with three more and then you, you. Well, you can buy the, with Eero's, you can buy them a la carte too. It's just, if you're going to get three, it's cheaper to buy. I think they're 200 bucks a piece or something. Right. And so if you buy three, you save a hundred bucks. Um, but with if Eero. I want to add, but if I want to extend that network even further, I can buy more. Totally modules correct okay. and i with the amplify stuff i'm not convinced that you can certainly in the app there is like when i opened the when, to compare the two when i set up eero you set up the first one and i actually set up an eero for my dad yesterday too um and uh the only problem i had and i got to talk to eero about this too is his router was in his basement and i had no service down there and the Eero app required a data connection before it was set up. Like in order to get it set up, I needed to be able to talk to the internet and I had no cell service in his basement. So I had to keep going up and down stairs to, you know, to get the thing set up. So that was a little weird. The Amplified says that you can, it'll create its own Wi-Fi network and you can do it. It likes to do it the way Eero does, but it, there is a way to do it the other way. But, um, but with Eero, you just, you, you set up the first one and then it says, okay, would you like to add another? And if you have another, add it. And then it says, great, that's all set. Would you like to add another? And that would go on and on. I think there's a limit, <clears throat> excuse me, of like 10 or, or something, but it, the limit is not three with the Eero. With the Amplify, it came out of the box, not only 
apparently limited to, you know, the, the base and the two mesh points, but it, the app already knew which mesh points were, were paired to that base station. So, and, and there doesn't appear to be a way in the app to say, Oh yeah, Hey, I, I want another mesh point, nor couldn't, can you buy them that way? So, and maybe that's a, you know, future software update would allow that. But at the moment you will buy this with the three things. It's either one ninety nine, two ninety nine, or three forty nine for the um, for the the eight hundred two dot eleven AC one. So crazy stuff. the uh, The standard one does eight hundred two dot eleven up to eight hundred two dot eleven N. The long range one does eight hundred two dot eleven N, but and and both of those standard and long range are doing two by two MIMO, which is what the Eero does. And then the HD one, the extenders do three by three MIMO on the mesh to, to get things going. And they've got uh, six radios instead of four. So they, um, they use two radios for talking to the clients a five and a 2.4, and then presumably two to, to, to create the mesh. And that's how, that's how you get full bandwidth on this is there's actually two radios involved or four radios involved, two for the back hall and two for the front hall, which is smart. That's, I mean, that's how they should be doing. So yeah, it's interesting stuff. I, I, I just love that, you know, like this Eero, I went over to my dad's for dinner last night and he was having, you know, he got the new MacBook pro and things weren't quite, quite great in his house with the Wi-Fi, And I was like, oh, let me get you set up with an Eero dad. So, um, it took, I, you know, I had to deal with the going up and downstairs because of the, the basement signal thing. But even, even with that, to get all three set up, it was like, you know, 20 minutes and it's good to go. And the same with the Amplify setting it up. It was, you know, 20 minutes, if that, but probably, you know, 10 and it just works. And the, the little base unit, like I said, it's got a clock on it. You can tap it and see how many clients are connected. You can tap it again. It's got a little touchscreen. Uh, and and see what the state of the network is and the bandwidth that's being used and all of that stuff. It's very very cool. It's a it's a smart smart way to do it. I like it. I like where we're going with this stuff. Any other questions before we uh, before we move on here, John? No, I wish I I wish I needed one. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That I mean, right? It, you know. Yep. It's um. People always ask me like, what router do you use? It's like, what day is it? I'm. It's I'm constantly testing these things. <laughs> I have no idea what router I use, but uh, right now the the Wi-Fi in the house is being handled by the uh, by the Amplify and doing a splendid job. The cool part is each of these they do they seem to do QoS pretty well. They do their own speed tests from the the router itself, which is not new. Like Netgear's routers will do that too, and then it seems based on my my quality tests that. You know, they they then manage the bandwidth of the connection based on on that, which is good, as they should. I I but I got to confirm that they're actually doing QoS. It seems like they are, but that's that's one of my questions for them. Actually, let me put that on my list because you know we got to know. So we'll talk more about it. But uh, it's good stuff. I think it's time, John. I'm so glad we had this time together. Same. <laughs> Oh, and if you want to help us continue having these great times together, one thing you could do is send a comment or a question or a tip 
random string of gibberish. So we prefer you not do that. And I would send it, Dave, to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Would you send it to feedback at MacGeekGab.com, John? Uh, if I didn't send it there, I'd probably send it to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. How about if you were a premium listener uh, and you supported us directly, where would you uh, send your email then? I'd probably send it to premium at MacGeekGab.com. That's right. If you wanted to call us, though, you could call us at 224-888-GEEK, which, John, is? 4335. You can text that number, too. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that got kind of wacky, though. Only for us. It's great for the listeners. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's just the uh, the, the, the reply the mechanism interf- is kind yes. of convoluted. That's right. <laughs> but it's I'll doable. leave it at that. Yeah. It, it didn't work the way I expected it to when Co- I tried replying. Correct. <laughs> uh, it went in the bit bucket. I don't know where it went. I, I, I replied, and it just sent it out into the... the no bounce. The cloud, and, no and it disappeared. Yep. <laughs> yep. I know. Uh, com slash Facebook. I, and I want to point out, that will bring you to our Facebook group. We have our Facebook page, which is where we, you know, that's like, I guess, our main presence on Facebook, because that's how Facebook works. But if you send us, if you post a question on our Facebook page, it's almost a guarantee that no one will see it. And that's why we created the Facebook group. Because when you post a question in our Facebook group, everybody sees it, um, including us, but everybody, everybody does. And it really everybody? makes uh, everybody. That's right. Well, anybody that's a member of the group or, or looks there. Right. I think we're up at about uh, up to about 1,200 members now um, in the group, which is great. So uh, com slash Facebook is the way to get to the group. If you wind up at the page, you will see a note that says, hey, great. Thanks for liking our page. Now go over and join the group. So, um, so it, it's and it's a great place. So thanks to everybody that uh, that's just a part of it over there. Whether you're asking questions or answering questions or just participating in the conversation, it's it's awesome. And I want to thank everybody in the chat room today too at macgeekgab.com/stream. You folks are awesome. Thanks so much for helping with the show notes again. It really is nice to get things up uh, with with lots of those immediately. Very good stuff. Uh, I want to thank all our premium members, and we had some uh, who asked questions that we answered in this show. Listener Jason, with his tale of security woe, uh, premium member. Uh, Larry, uh, one of the mics, and I believe Allison's a premium member too, but, uh, but don't quote me on that. Uh, so thank you to all of you, even you, Allison. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors, as we mentioned, of course, earlier in the show, Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com, Barebones Software at Barebones.com, and all of our other sponsors in the podcast marketplace, Gazelle at Gazelle.com. We've got Fat Cat Software at FatCatSoftware.com slash MGG, where you get uh, a discount on power photos with coupon code MGG. Smile at SmileSoftware.com slash Geek. And Casper, casper.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks off a great mattress. My favorite. Yeah. Well, folks, uh, we will see you next week with a deep dive on backups. And until then, have a great day. Enjoy yourselves. I hope to see you if you're in the South Bay area of San Francisco at one of those gigs I'm playing with Paul. And... Don't get caught. Made up.